0: All right, if you have a a Bible, would you turn with me to John chapter 11? And uh, if you're using one of the red Story Church Bibles in the seat in front of you, John 11 is on page 524. We're looking at... John chapter 11 and then into chapter 12. We're taking a break from our study in the life of David to look at Jesus and his triumphal entry on a donkey into Jerusalem, what we know as Palm Sunday. Um, this is the beginning of Holy Week, Jesus' last uh, week alive in Jerusalem with his disciples as he teaches in the temple and faces opposition. During the Passover festival. And we're going to continue this story uh, after Jesus comes into the city. On Thursday, we'll look at what does Jesus teach his disciples on the night um, in which he was betrayed. And then on Sunday next week, we'll join together and finish this story uh, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. So I hope you'll come to both of those Thursday and next Sunday morning. Um, One of my kids' favorite toys at our house, and if you've been over uh, on Tuesday group or just hanging out with us, you'll know that my kids love to play with these. They're um, little things called magnetiles, and they're these like clear, colored, plastic pieces of shapes, like squares and triangles with magnets in them that you can construct different things, and um, I I find them pretty entertaining myself as well. Uh, But my, my kids have found another use for these. They'll take a red one, and they're a little transparent, And they'll put it up in front of their eyes, and so everything that they see is red. Or they'll take a blue one, and they'll laugh, and like, Daddy's all blue. And uh, so they'll do this. They'll put red things or blue things in front of their eyes, and the whole world around them changes colors. You know, depending on what piece of plastic they put in front of them, the rest of the world changes colors. And um, this morning, I want to suggest that when we look at Jesus... Uh, when we come to Jesus and examine him, that by default, we put things in front of our eyes and look through them when we look at Jesus. We, we put a lens on, and it's through those lenses that we examine Jesus, um, I've got perfect 20-20 vision. I've never had to wear glasses or contacts, so I've I've never actually done this, but I've watched enough movies to know that when you go for an eye exam or a prescription check, they put this contraption on, and the doctor switches between lenses, right? They say, which one's clearer, one or two? One or two? And you tell them, well, two. All right, and then they give you two new lenses, and which one's clear? This morning, as we look at the lenses that we look through to see Jesus, we have to evaluate, are they clear or are they unclear? And so as we look at Jesus riding into the the city, we're going to see two dominant lenses that people look at Jesus, and we're going to evaluate, are they clear or unclear? And then finally, we're going to see that Jesus offers us a third way to look at him. That's the clearest of all. If you are going to follow along on your bulletin, you'll see my three points there. Uh, The first one, the the first lens is that Jesus stands in the way. Second lens is Jesus stands up for my way. And the third lens that Jesus offers us is that he stands as the only way. So let's read uh, John chapter 11. We're going to start at verse 55. And then head into chapter one or chapter 12, verse 1, and then jump to verse 9. So you follow along on the screen or in your Bibles. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? Uh, do you think that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees, they had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, that he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And continuing in verse 9, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing? Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life, in this world, will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that it is true, that it is good for us, Lord, that it pierces our hearts. We pray now... Uh, Through your spirit, would you open up the eyes of our heart and our mind to see you clearly, to know you more deeply, and to love you and to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the first lens that people put on to look at Jesus, we can see in how the chief priests and the Pharisees Approach Jesus. Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees, you need to know this, they are the religious leaders. They're the elite, the social elite. In Jerusalem and in all of Judea, they hold power and they've got authority. They regulate worship, they run the temple and the sacrificial systems. They have a, a court in which they judge people in. These people have authority, and it's authority that's been handed down to them from Rome. Remember, Rome currently at this point is, is occupying Judea, and, and they're the ones ultimately in charge, but they've given these leaders some authority, some power and position. And for the chief priests and the Pharisees, they like it. You know, they, they get kickbacks, They get money and social influence and respect and power. This is who they are, and they've heard about Jesus. They've been witnessing him from afar. Jesus has come now to Jerusalem. This will be his third time, and he's taught in the temples. They've heard that he's traveling around as a preacher, gathering crowds. They've heard about Lazarus that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And these religious leaders are scared. They're worried. Because when they look at Jesus, they don't see a miracle worker. They don't see a preacher of good works. They see someone who has the potential to incite insurrection and rebellion, who's amassing a following who is preaching what they call revolution. Jesus, in their minds, stands against their way of life. And so they go to try to find him. You know, They say, hey, if anyone knows where he is, tell us. We want to go and arrest him. And earlier in chapter 11, they, they've already planned, they're not just going to arrest him, they're going to put him on trial, and they want to put him to death. They want to put a stop to Jesus. Jesus, in their mind, stands in the way of their life. He is a threat to their position, their status quo. They have achieved this uh, level of power, and now Jesus threatens to take it away. They don't like him. They don't like what he has taught. They don't like what he threatens to do. They don't like what he has demanded of the people that follow him, those who listen to him. They want to put him to death. Jesus, for them, stood in the way of self-fulfillment. He was against their understanding of freedom, of life, and liberty, the way things ought to be. And for, for centuries uh, after not just in the first century, but for centuries after, people have always looked at Jesus through that lens. Jesus stands opposed to how I want to live my life. Jesus stands in the way of my pursuit of happiness, my pursuit of self-fulfillment, my desire for freedom, to express myself however which way I want to. This is not just a problem for the religious elite of Jesus' day. This is a problem for us today, too. Remember Jesus' teaching to the rich young ruler who, who honestly came to him and said, I want to follow you. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come with me, which flies in the face of any sense of self-fulfillment and happiness in our world today. Or consider Jesus' teaching on marriage and sexuality. Jesus affirms the whole scripture that teaches that marriage is set in place by God in creation to be between one man and one woman in the context of a covenant relationship. And that all sexual expression outside of that. Whether or not it's outside of the body or in your head or your heart, anything outside of that definition, according to Jesus, is a violation of God's commands. And so for those who have been swept up in the sexual revolution of the last several decades, but even much more common today in our world, Jesus' teachings are repressive, backwards, limiting, restricting, He stands in the way of sexual freedom and expression. That's what so many people think about Jesus. That's the lens in which they look at Jesus. He doesn't want me to live the way I want to live. He's restrictive, oppressive. He doesn't love me. If he loved me, he would let me do whatever I wanted to do. He would let me be whoever I wanted to be. But instead, the Jesus I see doesn't love me. He doesn't want me to be happy. He wants me to suffer. He doesn't want me to have joy. He wants to take my joy away. He stands in the way of my joy. Is that how you see Jesus? When you open up Scripture and read about Jesus and hear what he says, is that the way that you see Jesus? That his rules are restrictive and stand in the way of your joy? This Thursday, past Thursday, was uh, opening day for Major League Baseball, sports ball, Scar Um, And although the Guardians lost, uh, it was great to see baseball on TV again after the delayed start to the season. But I want us to consider uh, what baseball would be like for both the players themselves and us as spectators, if when they returned for this season, for the 2022 season, that one of the new rules was that every team could come and play using whatever rules they think were best. And so one team comes and plays and they think that for our left-handed hitters, it's easier for them to get off the bag if they run the bases clockwise instead of counterclockwise. That's one team's rule. And another team comes in and says, hey, our team thinks that it would be best if the pitcher could get a running start before he throws the ball. And they play by that rule. Another team says, hey, it's, it would be easier for me if I could throw the ball at the runner to get him out rather than having to throw it to the baseman to tag the guy out. What if one team thinks, hey, it would be better if the catcher could taunt the batter all while he's trying to bat? I mean, it would be chaos. It might be fun to watch one game like that, but if that was the whole season, it would not be fun. If everyone just did whatever they wanted to do, it would not be an enjoyable experience. For the players, yeah, but also for us. You know, the rules of baseball, like the regulations that everyone has to play in, it doesn't prevent joy. It protects it. Jesus' commands are not to repress us and to hinder us from joy. They're given to us to protect the joy. Like Jesus wants us to be joyful. He wants us to have life. He actually wants us to have abundant life. So he says, come and follow me, Listen to what I have to say. Live the way I want you to live. That is the path towards real life. But many people put on the lens and think, Jesus wants to stand in the way of my joy. This isn't just true for non-Christians. This is true for Christians, too. Like, we open up Scripture, and we read, Jesus say, no one can worship two masters, You can't serve both money and God. What do you do with that? Do you rationalize it away and say, well, he's not talking about me? I don't worship money. No, but maybe you make life decisions based on your bank account where you're going to live, what job you're going to have, what your family will look like, what vacations you go on, how you invest your money. You make all of those life decisions all around whether or not it's going to affect your bank account or not. That's, that's serving money and not God. Or what do we do when we read Jesus say, go into all of the world and make disciples? Do we read that and say, well, that's not about Me, that's about missionaries and and pastors and evangelists, those who have been gifted and equipped and trained to share the gospel, not little old me at home with my kids or little old me in the office building 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. Or do you open up Scripture and say, maybe Jesus is talking to me. Maybe he does want to lead me to joy. Maybe he does want me to view my neighbors and my coworkers and my family as people that he is sending me to to love and share the gospel with. We, we tend to think, well, they might reject me. They might not like me anymore. They might uninvite me from their parties. They might not invite me over for dinner anymore. Certainly, Jesus wouldn't want me to not be happy. I think Jesus is saying, take off that lens. I want to bring you to joy. That's the first lens. Jesus stands in the way of my life. The second lens we see in the crowds. They go to Jesus and look for him wearing the lens that says, Jesus stands up for my way of life. The crowds are from all over Judea. They've come up to Jerusalem for the Passover. I mean, millions of people from the countryside are making their way to the city of Jerusalem. And they've heard about Jesus. Maybe they come from Galilee and have witnessed his teachings and miracles. Maybe they were there last year at the Passover when Jesus faced opposition from the Pharisees. They know about Jesus and they've heard about him. And so they're asking themselves, Hey, do you think he's going to come this year? Do you think he's really going to make it into the city? There's excitement. There's anticipation. And then they hear, Jesus is in Bethany. He's going to come to the city. And then on the first day of the week, they go out and meet him along the way, verse 12 tells us. They come out with palm branches waving. They cry out, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. We can examine um, what they are looking for by just taking apart their actions. They they come out with um, palm branches, which at this point in the first century, the palm tree was a national icon. Just 200 years before this, Judas Maccabees led a revolt in Jerusalem against the Greek Empire that was encroaching upon them and defiling the temple. And when they secured victory and reestablished worship in the temple, there was a parade. And what did the people bring out in celebration? Palm branches. And so for decades, the palm branch became this symbol of national victory. It was even printed on the coins that were used in Jerusalem at the time. Palm branches symbolize this national zeal for independence and freedom from the oppressor. And they come out to him and they cry out, Hosanna, which means save us. Lifted directly out of Psalm 118, one of the psalms that the pilgrims would have been singing as they made their way up the hill to Jerusalem. Hosanna, save us. They're looking for a savior. What are they needing saved from? Rome. Rome, at this point, was occupying the land and bringing in their pagan, pluralistic culture. They're sexual promiscuity, their celebration of violence in the, temp- or in the Colosseum. I mean, these people were wicked, and they were defiling the religious and social culture of their day. They needed to be saved from them. They were looking for a savior. They knew that Moses had delivered the people out of corrupt Egypt. Now they need a new savior to deliver them from the hands of Rome. They say, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They're longing for a king, a king like David. We've been reading about David and how he, he stood as a model leader for God's people. They want another king like David who would ride in in victory, defeat their enemies, and purify their people, establish a new kingdom, one of justice, who would establish policies that would align with their values. They come out to Jesus and say, I want a king who will stand up for my way of life, who will defeat my cultural enemies, who will establish a kingdom based on my priorities, my principles, and my values. That is what they saw in Jesus. How does that sound? Does that sound familiar? Many people today, many Christians say look around at our society and they say it is decaying. We see boards of education making terrible decisions. We see state legislators enacting bills that are eroding a historic precedent for gender and sexuality. We go to movies and we see entertainment celebrating violence and sex. We see media holding some people to account but not others. We look around and see corruption in every area of our life. Many people say our traditions and our values are sweeping away. Gone are the good old days. And so they find enemies. Whether it be cultural enemies, political enemies, religious enemies, whatever is encroaching in on them, they are our enemy. What do they do? We look for a king who will stand up for what we want and put to death our enemy. Someone will stand up for my way of life. Someone who will stand up for my values. Someone who will enact policies that reflect our tradition, our positions. I I feel like every presidential election cycle has just gotten increasingly more and more like this. Surrounding ourselves on one side or the other around a figure who is going to fight a cultural war. On January 6th of 2021, hundreds of supporters of President Trump gathered in the National Mall to protest the results of the election and um, support their candidate. You know, all of this was going on while the confirmation of those votes was taking place in Capitol Hill. The protests, unfortunately, took a turn for the worse, and some from that group began pushing their way, fighting their way to the Capitol building to disrupt what was occurring. While all this played out on national news, I I couldn't help but be disturbed when I saw in the mix people holding up signs that say Jesus saves as they're walking up the steps of the Capitol building. It was a, a gross example of this marriage between our faith and seeking a nationalistic, political, and cultural position of power. Certainly not everyone there was in agreement with what was happening, but you can't unsee that sign. For many, we have put our hope for cultural superiority and power in the hands of someone or something that promises us victory, who promises to stand up for my way of life. We have to ask ourselves, is that the way you look at Jesus? Do you see in him someone that will stand up for all that you believe in? Or do we look at Jesus and ask, am I going to stand up for all that Jesus believes in? Let's be honest. Look at the teachings of Jesus. Yes, he is concerned with marriage and sexuality, yes, he's concerned with, with you know, life uh, and, and, and the rights of the unborn. That should be a value that we get from the teachings of Jesus. But do we also care about Jesus's instant insistence on justice for the oppressed and love and welcoming to the poor and the marginalized and the outcast? Like the values of Jesus do not fit squarely in our two-party spectrum. Is that the way that you look at Jesus? Does Jesus stand up for your way of life, or do you use your power, your influence, your ability to stand up for the values of Jesus? We've looked now at two predominant lenses that people see Jesus through. You've got the religious elites looking at Jesus as someone who stands against them. And you've got the crowds who look at Jesus and say, this is a man who will do whatever I want him to do. Jesus gets on a donkey and he rides into the city. John tells us in verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. They didn't know how to look at Jesus. They didn't understand what Jesus was doing either. Then they remembered when Jesus was glorified that these things had been written about him. There's something about Jesus when he is glorified that makes the lens clear. That, that unfogs our understanding of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. If we continue reading in verse 20. Jesus is now in the city and there are people once again looking for him. And Jesus says, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You want to know how to look at me? It's about to play out in front of you the lens that you have to wear to see who I really am is about to happen. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is the lens through which we have to look at Jesus. Death and resurrection. Death and resurrection is the lens that Jesus offers us to look at him through. It's the only way that we can look at him and find life through his death and resurrection. This is how we are to understand him coming on a donkey. Jesus gets on the donkey and John says, well, this is in fulfillment of Zechariah 9, where the prophet says, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey, a donkey's colt. This comes from Zechariah chapter 9, and the prophet continues and says that this king is coming to you righteous with him. Salvation is with him. He is coming humbly mounted on a donkey. He's going to cut off the war horses and the chariots. He's going to establish peace amongst the nations. He will rule from sea to sea, from the great river to the ends of the earth. Jesus is a king. He does come as a king, but he comes as a king not the way that the people thought he would. He's not coming to raise up an army and overthrow the Romans. He's not coming to overthrow the, the elite system. He's coming to die, to establish his kingdom, his kingdom of humility, which is not weakness, it's using your strength for the sake of the vulnerable. He's coming to, to establish peace, not fight a cultural war. He's coming to serve and bring flourishing to even his enemies. And he is coming to establish a global kingdom, not just for the Jews, but for everyone, your neighbor, your brother, your coworker, the refugee, the immigrant. He has come to establish this global kingdom and it's all through death and resurrection. How do we be a part of it? How can we see Jesus this way and join him in this mission? Jesus tells us whoever loves his life is going to lose it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it forever. If anyone serves me, he must follow me where I am. There will my servant be also. Jesus is saying, if you want to be part of this kingdom, if you want to truly understand who I am and what I have taught you and what what I want to do in your life, you have to give up your demand for self-fulfillment. You can't hold on to your life and and, and your values and your position in the culture war. You have to give that up. Die to yourself. And the only way that we can do that is if we see that Jesus has gone before us, died for us so that we might live. If we give up ourselves, trust in him, we have life now and forever. Jesus says, if anyone wants to come, follow me. We have to pick up our cross and go with them on this journey. Let's pray.